Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here this morning. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to especially welcome any visitors that might be here today. I do want to just have a quick little family meeting uh, for those of us who are covenant partners and regular attenders here. Just want to talk for a few minutes about next week, um, Easter Sunday, and how we might engage in that adventure together. Um, We have a lot of folks who come, as you might know, on Easter Sunday. Um, Normally on a Sunday, we have, you know, anywhere between 800 and 1,000 people on a Sunday morning. But last year on Easter, we had over, I think, over 1,500 folks come. And so in a small space like the one we have, it can make it challenging. And so we want to figure out ways that we can be the most hospitable possible, especially because many, many people come on Easter who don't know Jesus or who don't often come to church, maybe who are coming to church for the first time in a long time. And so let me just give a little bit of some happy tips to help you navigate. Uh, first of all, um, Easter services in here will be just the same as normal, 845 and 10 and 1115. However, we are having this additional service at 10 a.m. in the Fellowship Hall. Um, the music is going to be excellent. Actually, it's uh, going to be led by uh, Brooke Winters and Aaron Rose of Easton Fellowship. It'll be sort of a gospel set. Um, it'll be pretty awesome. And I might encourage you, especially if you don't really mind uh, where you worship and you might maybe want to have an opportunity to go the cruciform way, um, that you might uh, consider worshiping down there at 10 a.m., especially because if people who are just coming to church for the first time, they are more likely to come to the sanctuary. And so that opens up space for maybe some of our guests. Also, let's talk about the adventure of parking um, on Easter, uh, which can be challenging. Um, Let me actually help you show a diagram of of our... parking lots here. You see, we're, we're here, and there are three parking lots, you see, that are very close to us. Um, one here, one here, and then one right over there. Um, now, again, what an opportunity to go the cruciform way um, with parking. Um, you could do several things. You could either, first of all, we might leave those lots available for our older members who need to park near, also for our visitors who might be showing up to church for the first time and looking for a place. Now, if you're someone else, you look at all these different places you could park. Um, You could park uh, by our office building over here. There's lots of spaces here. Oh, my goodness. Look, here's a school. You could park in any of these lots, any of these spaces over here. Not this one, uh, but this one over here. And then there's this building across the street. We could park there. In fact, you might consider alternative transportation, if you, especially if you live close to the church. You know, one mile, two mile, ten miles. You could bike. Um, You could... (laughs) You could walk, you could carpool, you could Uber uh, or take a lift. I'm serious, friends. There are many things that you could do to, to again, we want to open up. This is all about opening up hospitable space um, for others to be here. Also with seating. Um, last year, we had an interesting problem where people were sh- uh, showing up and they, and they didn't have their whole uh, family with them. And they were sort of laying coats on seats or setting up cones on the, on the seats. Um, <laughs> And, and, and again, not a very hospitable thing to do for someone who is just showing up to church and looking for a seat. Say, nope, nope, this is vacant. No, Let, instead, come early with your whole crew. You know, sh- you shall not be seated until the whole party is here. Um, and, uh, and, and again, this is another way that we can be hospitable, especially to people who might be coming looking for life that actually matters. Okay? It's not for us. It's for others. So can we go that way? Can we do that, church family? Can we have an amen to that? All right. Okay, great. Speaking of cruciform way, 
we are in a sermon series together called That Very Thing. So let's, we're, we've been in, this is our second week on this great climactic chapter in 1 Corinthians on love. So let's uh, pray as we go to God's word. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the King of glory and that you came this day, not riding on a stallion, but riding on a donkey. You came not uh, gearing up to defeat your enemies, but to actually lay down your life for them. What a strange and beautiful king you are. We long to have a clear picture of you and your love for us today. So help us, Holy Spirit, help us. Help me, help all of us to not just hear your word, but respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we especially focused in on verses 1 through 3. So today, I'm just going to drill down deep on verses 4 through 7. So let's hear God's word together. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. And then verse 13. So now faith Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. The most popular course at Yale University right now is called Psychology and the Good Life. Psychology and the Good Life, taught by Professor Lori Santos, Psych 157. There was a really interesting article about this in the New York Times in January. It is not only the most popular course at Yale right now, but it is the most popular course in the history of Yale University. Right now, 1,200 undergrads in this course. One in four students at Yale University are in the psychology and the good life taught by Lori Santos. Why this class? Why is it so popular? Professor Santos in this article said that her students, she believes, are increasingly realizing that what they thought would give them the good life is not actually working. Just picture, these students, these are the best students in the country. They They have risen to the top. They have made the very best grades. They have excelled. They have performed. They have proven themselves. They have done all of those things that were promised to them that if you can do these things, you will achieve the good life. And yet, More than half of all students at Yale University are treated for anxiety and depression. In fact, the great majority of students at Yale, and maybe the great majority of American college students in the United States, report that they are miserable. And so Santos says this. She says, what I'm trying to teach in this class is that science has now empirically proven that our intuitions about what will make us happy, like success or winning the lottery, getting good grades, are actually completely wrong. We have no idea what makes us happy. We have no idea what makes us happy. And I love this because, you know, science is actually proving empirically what biblical ancient wisdom has always told us, and that is that what we think makes for a good life 
is actually completely wrong. And that has been the great message of this series, The Cruciform Life. The big idea in this series that we have said week by week is that the cross is not just the place where Jesus died. The cross shows us how to live. The cross shows us the good life. Every week we've been asking, what makes for a good and flourishing life? In Corinth, in Yale, in Richmond, we are all asking that question, what makes for a good life? And there are competing answers to that question. There, did you know there is a wisdom contest going on? Did you know that, friends? Everybody is trying to answer that question, what makes for a good and meaningful life? And the Corinthians had become convinced that what makes for a good life is power, success, wealth, accumulation, self-assertion, the expression of individual freedom. They were mirroring the cultural values of the society around them and bringing those values into the church. There was more in Corinth in them than there was of Christ. And the same goes for us Americans. Can we be honest about that, friends? That even us who invoke the name of Jesus tend to believe that same wisdom, the wisdom that is marketed to us in every commercial you watch, every pottery, pottery barn catalog that you get in the mail, you know, every movie that you see, everything is saying, here is a vision of the good life, a vision of glory and self-assertion and comfort and accumulation, a life pursuing your own gain and your own desires. And into this wisdom marketplace steps Jesus Christ, who says, if anyone wants to take, to follow me, they must take up their cross and die. Because whoever wants to find their life must lose it. And whoever is willing to lose their life for me and for the gospel will find it. Jesus invites us into the way of the cross. He says, the way you thought you could find life by asserting your ego and living for your desires is actually the way to death. And the way of the cross, the way of service and humility and obedience and self-denial, that is actually the way to life. The cross is the wisdom of God. And it is an upside-down wisdom. It calls into question all of our values and ambitions. Jesus is inviting him, us into his upside-down way, which is the cruciform way as the way to life. Now, this whole argument culminates, comes to a climax here in 1 Corinthians 13, because if the cruciform life sounds a little abstract, there is nothing more practical than this chapter, this chapter on love. The supreme mark of a cruciform life is love. We, talk, we began this last week. We learned last week that love is the supreme mark of a life that actually matters. You can live a seemingly significant and accomplished life and have not love and in the end have nothing, while you can live a seemingly insignificant life and do many little things with great love and have a life that actually matters and a life that is truly eternally significant. So we started in last week, but what I want to do today, take a deeper dive into verses four through seven in which Paul really begins to describe the nature of this love, the heart of what the virtues that this love is marked by. And remember what we said last week, we define love as need-based and feeling-driven, your life for me, whereas Paul defines love as my life for yours. Love that is grounded in death, which is why this is called a cruciform love, okay? So let's just dive in and look at some of these qualities of love. I'm not going to go through all 16 of them. We'd be here all day. I probably have enough content here to talk for about two hours. I won't do that, I promise. But let's just, let's just look at a few. 
Okay, first, let's start in the beginning, verse 4. Paul says, love is patient. I love the old King James Version uh, that says, love suffereth long. Don't you love that? Love suffereth long. Suffers a long time. See, now, so here's, here's a good definition of patience. Patience is the capacity to endure difficulty or disappointment without blowing up or lashing out. Patience is paired very closely with what Paul says in verse 5. See verse 5, he says, love is not irritable, or as the NIV translates, love is not easily angered. So negatively, love is not easily provoked or irritated. Positively, love suffers a long time and delays getting angry. Now, anger itself, the Bible sees as virtuous because God himself is angry. We hear again and again, God is angry at sin. He's anger at the way that his world is being destroyed. But God's anger is righteous anger. And the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger is that while righteous anger is driven by love, unrighteous anger is driven by selfishness. So a parent moving out against someone because her child is being harmed, that is righteous anger because it is love being driven. It is anger being driven by love and desire to protect the vulnerable. But a parent moving out against the child because the child is annoying him and interrupting him watching a basketball game that may or may not be autobiographical, uh, that, that is unrighteous anger fueled by selfish desire. And James actually says this in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your desires that wage war within you? Did you know that you have a war inside of you? It is a war of desires. I have many desires inside of me that maybe I do not wish to name, but I just, you know, I have a desire for there to be no traffic on the way to work. I desire for my children to sleep till 9.30 a.m. every day. You know, I desire for all of my colleagues at work to be undemanding and agreeable. I desire for everyone that I live with to always do things the way that I like them. I have all of these desires, and I bet you do too. And when these desires are thwarted or, and these demands of the self are threatened, what happens? Our irritability, our anger rises up. When we get mad, we tend to blame the person or blame the circumstance. But the Bible says, look inside you. Is it not your warring desires? And so how does love handle irritable people, irritable circumstances? Well, here's what it does. First of all, love recognizes what is happening. Self-awareness, right? Your kid defies you again. Your spouse does that thing that you hate again. Your coworker drops the ball again. You feel the irritability and the anger rising up. What's the first thing you do? You recognize what's happening. You say, oh, I am feeling angry, irritable. And actually, that is a huge learned skill. One of the great keys to emotional intelligence is being able to identify, name the emotions that you're feeling. It took me until I was about 37 to be able to do that. So the first thing is to actually recognize and name the emotions that you're feeling. Secondly, you analyze them, right? You say, why am I feeling irritable? Why am I feeling angry? What desire is being threatened? My desire to be able to watch this basketball game without interruption. My desire to have my life exactly the way that I want it. My desire to, you know, not have my own personal success threatened by you know, what my colleague is doing. What desire is being threatened? So you recognize it, you analyze it, and then what do you do? You kill it. You kill it. You take that warring desire, the demand for a trouble-free life, 
need for an uninterrupted schedule, desire for life without any irritations, and you bring it before Jesus and you let it die. The self that easily complains, quickly irritated, thinks that I always know better, I always know best, that is the self that must die before the cross of Jesus. You see, patience, friends, is not a feeling. It is not a personality trait that some people have and some people don't. It is a learned skill to face difficulty and disappointment with increasing poise and peace. It is a war that you wage every day against the desires that wage war within you. See? Cruciform love. Even patience requires death. (laughs) Do you see how this works? Kindness. Let's think about kindness. Again, Paul is not talking about a personality attribute here. Like some people are kind, some people aren't. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a choice to actively move towards a difficult person or a difficult circumstance. If patience is reactive, how you bear difficulty, uh, kindness is proactive, how you move towards difficulty, difficult people, difficult things. My friend Rankin defines kindness as compassion plus empathy. It is moving towards another person while doing the imaginative work of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. That's kindness. Doing the imaginative work that compassion and empathy requires. So let's say somebody at work disappoints you or offends you or says something hurtful. The natural heart is exacting with others, but gives itself grace, gives myself the benefit of the doubt. So when that guy does something mean or rude, it's because he's a jerk. When I do something mean or rude, it's because I'm complicated, right? <laughs> it's because I'm complex. I'm not a jerk. I'm just, I'm just com- But see, the, the kind heart does for the other what you normally do for the self. Compassion plus empathy. Who knows what that guy is going through? Maybe he got in an accident. Maybe his wife just left him. Maybe he got some bad medical news. Instead of withdrawing or cutting off the difficult person, kindness does the work of empathy to move towards the other in love. And that requires amazing strength. Lewis Smedes writes, kindness is a power born of love. It's a power. Kindness requires courage because to move towards another person when you want to run away is scary. You may end up making things harder for yourself. You may end up taking on this other person's pain. You may end up being misunderstood, but kindness is brave. It's brave because it chooses to accept the cost of another person's pain and mess in order to move towards the difficult circumstance or person in love. See that? Even kindness requires death. What about, verse 5, resentment? Love is not resentful. NIV says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Again, Lewis Smedes, in his book, Love Without Limits, writes, resentment is yesterday's hurt hardened into today's hostility. Yesterday's hurt hardened into today's hostility. And the great paradox of resentment is this. We all know that resentment is bad, and yet we all persist in it because we find a sick pleasure in resentment, right? There's something to enjoy about it. When we chew the cud of past wrongs over and over again, you know what I'm talking about? Doing it, it helps justify our anger. It secures our morally superior position. It fuels our private revenge fantasies. You know what I'm talking about? Private revenge fantasies? You know what I'm talking about. We enjoy, right, feeling like the noble person who was unjustly treated. By doing this, 
we are able to put the one who offended us into a metaphorical cancer ward. They are a spiritual incurable. Resentment allows us to define the one who hurt us by their worst behavior, and it recuses us of compassion for them. And this is why Paul uses courtroom language here. If given the chance, we will insist for the whole record of what was wrong to be laid out again. Smith says, nothing short of a complete trial with a stenographer's transcription. Let's just be clear on what happened, okay? Let's be clear on what you actually said to me. Let's be all be clear about this. Why do we do this? Because we need to be justified, right? We want to be sure that everyone understands that I am in the morally superior position in this situation, and in keeping resentment alive, we poison ourselves. We poison the other. So what does love do instead? Paul says it keeps no record. It lets the past die. It starts a new chapter, moves forward, even without settling the score. It stops replaying the tapes. It closes the door on the courtroom, rips up the ledgers, the record books. And here's the thing. This is the hardest thing about love. Listen to me, friends. Maybe you were right. Maybe you were. But love does not have to set the record straight. Love denies what justice demands. Love knows that relationships do not do well in courtrooms. They never have. Love is willing to actually sit in the place of being misunderstood. Love is okay with accounts not being settled, content with ledgers staying unbalanced. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And if you've ever had to do this before, you know what I'm talking about. This feels so unfair. Do you know why it feels unfair? Because it is. Forgiveness is unfair. It's one of the most unfair and brutal things you ever have to do. Why? Because it is releasing the other person from what they owe you. And that is a death. It is death. It costs you to let go of your pain and the deadly pleasure that you find in it. And you will never be free. You will never be free until you do it. Love is death. Love is not resentful. What about this? Love bears all things and endures all things, Paul says in verse 7. We talked last week about how our modern notions of love are grounded in personal fulfillment and fueled by feelings. We enter into relationships because they feel good and because they are getting our personal needs met. And this is the vision of love that we all live with every single day and that is advertised to us everywhere. We see when Harry meets Sally. We see when Harry marries Sally. We do not see after the credits roll when Harry is not wiping down the countertops. And Sally does not seem to be able to put her laundry in the dirty clothes basket. You know, those are the things that we do not see. And yet this is where love works. The problem with every relationship that you will ever be in is that you will eventually run into disappointment, discouragement, and unfulfillment. In fact, I'm looking at my dear friend Margie right here. Do you mind if I share this? No, you don't, do you? Um, and <laughs> Margie, um, and, and Margie... Uh, and I work with couples when we do premarital counseling, and she, she always says this question to them. She says, I want you to realize this, that you are feeling deeply in love right now, as you should, but there will come a day in your marriage, whether it's three days or three weeks or three months or three years, in which you will look at this, over at this other person who is drooling on the pillow, and you will say, why did I marry this person? <laughs> so you're laughing nervously because you know it's true. <laughs> because love is painful. And we come against the inevitable outcome of living with flawed and broken people in a flawed and broken world. 
And not only do our difficult personalities challenge relationship, but our difficult circumstances challenge them as well. A spouse or parent is diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Oh my gosh. You suddenly realize the journey before you. A baby is born with a disability. A friend descends into a really demanding season. An adult child makes endless decisions that are destructive. See, it's in those moments, friends, moments of disappointment and discouragement and weariness and trial when you start to wonder what went wrong and you want to hit eject and when the feelings aren't there, that is the moment when you are ready to learn how to love. That's the moment. Hollywood knows nothing of this kind of love. Feelings-based, personal need-driven love has no power, no backbone, no resources for pain. If personal happiness is your chief aim in relationships, you will have no capacity to endure when things get painful. Real love bears all things. It endures all things. It is stubborn love. Paul Miller says, this is love that has no exit strategy. It is love that burns its passport. It says, I am staying, and I will not move. Now, let me just say this. This does not mean that love accepts injustice or that love accepts abuse. If you are being abused in a relationship, you need to tell us. The church needs to be a place that is safe for people who experience abuse. In fact, one of the most loving things you can do if you're being abused, one of the most loving things you can do to an abuser is to expose them and to call the police, and to tell us, and to let the facts be known. Because why? Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. That's what love does. But even then, this is the work of love, because love is always choosing to do what is the good of the other, even if it means to expose them to what is needed in their life. Love chooses again and again, even against feelings, to do what is good for the other. When feelings are negative, When the marriage is dry, when the friendship is difficult, when circumstances are inspiring, love stays put. Love endures all things. Finally, Paul says this, love believes all things and hopes all things. Love chooses to see in the other what may be difficult to see. Love is not blind. It is not gullible. It does not pretend like things are lovely. Love chooses to see the God-given identity of the other, especially when it is difficult to see. When I was in college, I worshiped at this tiny little country Anglican church, and the pastor there would always call us, when he was preaching, he would call us the beloved. He would just call us beloved. And at first I thought that was weird, and then I grew to love it, because it is a powerful thing to be called the beloved, especially on a morning when you feel like anything but. And yet this is what God does for us, though he sees us more clearly than anyone, and he knows you and your issues and your sin and your failures better than he did anyone else He chooses not to define you by your sin and by your failings, but by the great truth that is now yours in Jesus Christ, that you are the beloved. Every morning when you wake up, you look in the mirror, and you say to yourself, hello, ugly. God says, hello, beloved. Hello, beloved. And now, friends, we have the power to do this kind of love for each other. You're close to people. You see the worst in another. You see their flaws, their struggles. Yet love chooses to speak the new name over the other. You may feel foolish. You may feel like nothing more than the sum total of your failures, but a friend who loves looks at you and says, I see the beloved. 
I see you with the eyes of God, the beloved that Jesus has died to win. What a liberating thing you could do for another person who feels enslaved by the dark story of shame that they tell themselves. It is a liberating thing to say to another, I see you, I know you, and I know and call you the beloved one. We have the power to do that. It believes all things. And love can do this because it also hopes all things. It speaks of what we will one day be. Michelangelo famously said, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Did you know that Michelangelo took a block that had been discarded by two other sculptors and out of it created the David? He did not see the block. He saw what the block could be. And that's what love does. Love looks at another and does not just see the block that it currently is, but what the block is becoming, what God is making. And that gives incredible power to love, power to endure great difficulty, power to keep going even in the most hard and painful circumstances, power to keep going even when there does not appear to be any current prospect of resolution. Love hopes and endures because it is acting not on the basis of what you can currently see, but what you believe and know God to be doing and what he will do. And because of that, love can endure and bear all things. Cruciform love, friends. There you have it. Just a few selections of this powerful virtue, the chief sign of the cruciform life, a life that is willing to lay down your life for the other's good. So what should you do with this? This is Holy Week, friends. We are entering into the high and holy days of the church. And as we move through this week, I want to invite you to do two things in light of this chapter. First, would you ask yourself some hard questions this week about yourself. Verse 4 says, love does not boast, it is not proud, which means that love is willing to do the work of self-examination and repentance. And there is no better week to do that than Holy Week. De Baton, who I quoted last week, says, the great enemy of love is self-righteousness. If someone thinks that they are easy to live with, they are by definition hard to live with. Uh, they probably do not have much of an understanding about themselves. See, wisdom begins with knowing that you are actually pretty difficult. Sometimes it can take a person well into their 40s, at least it has for me, to realize, oh, all these problems I've been having in my relationships, maybe it's me. And the fool can go to his grave without ever acknowledging that truth. This is a blow of grace. As we said last week, the first step toward becoming a person who loves is admitting that you have failed to love. Hearing these descriptions of love, are you convicted? Is there something you need to confess? Are you harboring some resentment towards a coworker, family member, or friend that you have refused to let go? Have you given in to your selfish desires, which are emerging in irritability, crankiness, impatience, and anger? Have you withdrawn from a difficult person or a difficult circumstance instead of moving towards them in kindness and mercy? Are you choosing to believe the worst about another person, seeing them in their failures rather than who Jesus has pronounced them to be in Christ? Have you lost hope for a relationship? Have you stopped enduring? Have you stopped believing? Our healing begins with repentance, admitting your own sin, turning back to God, crying for mercy. There is nothing like repentance that makes the love of God bigger and the sins of others smaller. 
Nothing. So do that this week. Hold your life up to the mirror of 1 Corinthians 13. The second thing that I'm inviting you to do is to walk with Jesus this week and to see him as fulfilling this chapter. As I said last week, just take the name Jesus, substitute it in every time the word love is mentioned. And I invite you to journey through Holy Week this week through the lens of 1 Corinthians 13. See how Jesus fulfills the law of love for us. On this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus rode his little steed in Jerusalem. Everyone's clapping. Everybody's dancing. Yes, it's the Messiah waving their palm branches. It's so exciting, so cute. Did you see the girls up here waving their branches? And yet only Jesus knows. Only Jesus knows that on the top of that hill, looking down in that city, he will not ride down into a parade of his coronation, but that he will ride down to his own torture and execution. Only Jesus knows. And what does he do? He rides that donkey down into hell. He moves toward pain. He moves toward suffering. He does it for the sake of love. In the garden, after the Last Supper, he cries out in agony to his father, take this cup from me. Take it away, God. He is not writhing in pain from the physical pain he's about to endure, but he knows that he is about to become a curse for the sin of the world. He is know that he is about to drink the cup of the judgment of the ocean of the sin of humanity, and he is literally standing on the rim of hell, tasting its pungency. And it's quiet. It's dark. Nobody's there. The disciples are asleep. The soldiers haven't showed up. He can walk away. And what does he do? He says, get up, friends. It's time to go. It's time to walk into hell. He endures. He bears all things. On the cross, he's hanging there, looking down. They're mocking him. Those that he loves, those that he made, profoundly misunderstood him, mocking him. At that moment, he can call down a legion of angels to take him off the cross, to take out the wrath of God upon his enemies. What does he do? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. He does not count the sins against him. He chooses love over justice. He, he absorbs the cost of our sin, taking on infinite unfairness for the sake of love. Do you see, friends, what wondrous love is this? Has anybody ever suffered this kind of psychological pain for you? Has anybody ever endured this kind of hell for you? Has anybody, have you ever had to, been asked to do anything such as this? No. And yet this is suffering love for you. And friends, when that love gets in you, oh my gosh, you can do anything. You can do anything. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We love because he first loved us. You can love because if you're a Christian, you are united to Christ and you literally have it in you, the love of Christ in you. And therefore, when you are in a situation and someone hurts you again, you can choose patience and long-suffering. You, you say, how can I hold this sin against them when the Lord has not held my infinite of sins against me? When you have a hard time seeing the good in the other, you can remember every day Jesus sees me fully as I am, all the dark places, and yet pronounces me the beloved. Surely I can believe that for my brother, for my sister. When you want to bring another to justice and be the moral winner in a situation, you recall that Jesus did not demand what he deserved, but threw out the ledgers and ripped up the accounting books. Why? To set you free. Surely I can do this and rest in being misunderstood and having my own ledgers not balanced as Jesus himself has done this for me. See, friends, this is how cruciform love works. 
And let me ask you again the question that we began with. What do you think makes for a good life? Everybody wants to know. The Yale students want to know, friends. What makes for a good life? You want to know what makes for a good life. Jesus answers the way of the cross, the way of love. My life for yours. And so we keep doing this. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it sounds crazy, we keep doing this in the little everyday places of our lives, going the way of love. And here's what's going to happen. Let me give you a little preview of the future. One day, faith will be no more because we will finally see the one that we have trusted in. Faith will no longer be necessary. Hope will not be needed because we will actually possess the object of our hope and the one remaining thing will be love. The end of the story, when the new world comes, love will rule, love will reign, love will never fail, and you will realize at that moment, oh my goodness, Jesus was right. The cruciform life is truly the way. You will realize that every single little death that you have ever died for love, every single one of them, every single one was worth it. Love never fails. Let's pray. Maybe just take a moment to name something in your own life in which you have failed to love. Maybe your brother, your sister, a parent, a spouse, a colleague, a coworker, in some situation where love has failed and where you need the Lord Jesus to renew the engine of love in your heart as you see his own love poured out for you this week. pray together using this song, asking the Lord Jesus for mercy. You hear us call. You hear us call, you hear us call. Help us this week to walk the way of love. May we see the ways that we have failed to love come to you for mercy. And may we see you, Jesus, going the way of love for us, transform and renew us through the ways that you have given up yourself, your life for us this week. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our love. Lord, hear our prayer. You hear us call. You hear us call. Abba. Right.
we pray that you would help us in those many relationships and circumstances where love is most seriously required. For parents who are daily struggling to love children and the everyday challenges of parenting, grant patience and clear-headedness and endurance. For marriages, especially those that are deeply struggling, where feelings have grown cold and the strain is deep, give power so that love would overcome estrangement. For relationships among us that are broken and in conflict, grant humility and the grace to go the way of Jesus, to keep no record of wrongs, and to extend mercy. For employees and employers, and for the difficult work of interpersonal relationships in the workplace, grant us compassion and empathy that we might bear with those who struggle. For those of us who are caring and working with a parent or a sibling or a spouse or a loved one who is sick or dealing with mental illness or disability, give us grace to endure, to bear all things, to keep hoping and believing. Lord, hear our prayer. You hear us call, you hear us call, Abba Father. You hear us call, you hear us call, Abba Father. Lord have mercy, Christ have Finally, O Lord, for our nation and world so empty of love, so trapped in cycles of hatred and selfishness, have mercy on us. For the violence that continues to tear apart our land, have mercy on us. For the social and political fragmentation that harms the most vulnerable among us, have mercy on us. For our fear that keeps us from loving and moving toward those who are difficult or different or in great need, have mercy on us. For the horrific racial history of our land that continues to perpetuate injustice and inequity, have mercy on us. For wars and rumors of wars and the suspicion and hatred and pride that fuels them, have mercy on us. And for your church that has failed again and again to go the way of love, that has mirrored the patterns of the world, have mercy on us. Renew us with the love of Christ that we might be a sign of your kingdom that has come and is coming where love reigns and where love rules forever. Lord, hear our prayer. Please stand as we sing. You hear us call, you hear us call, Abba Father. You hear us call, you hear us call, Abba Father. Lord Jesus, that you are our priest, our high king, and our sacrifice, and we pray these things in your name, the name of wondrous love. Amen.